I have some thoughts that I'd like to share with you. I know we've been on for a while, and um, but I'm going to press ahead. I'm just going to press ahead this morning, and hopefully you'll stick with me. Um, hopefully you'll you'll listen in here, tune in for a little bit. Um, I've been uh, really impacted, as have all of you, with what's going on out there uh, in the in the culture, in the world. I've been listening, um, learning, watching. And uh, so I'm just going to share some thoughts with you this morning um, as I put them together. And um, I'm going to title this uh, Not Idle Bystanders. Not Idle Bystanders. The winds of change are raging through the trees of 2020 with a violence and a surge that would make anyone passing through the forest tremble. For months now, we have been experiencing the steady gale-forced winds of COVID, toppling the social and economic oak and redwood trees as institutions and businesses close, people lose jobs, and relationships have been isolated to virtual reality. Over 108,000 people lost in our country alone from this illness. And that's just the official statistics. How about the countless others who have fallen under the statistical radar? It's a violent storm. What it doesn't take in human life, it has sapped in economic and socially connected resources, leaving millions struggling, hurting, alone, and in fear. And like every powerful and overwhelming storm, there are brief moments when it's even worse. Microbursts, wind gusts that snap the tops out of even the strongest remaining trees. In 2020, our wind gusts have caused individual black lives to be snuffed out by broken systems and abuses of power. The trees are crashing all around us, falling precariously from unknown heights, covering our path and causing confusion, anger, Rage and fear. How much more violent can the 2020 windstorm get? The storm is far from over. Nicholas Kristof, in his editorial in the New York Times today, asked this question. What if there was no video of George Floyd? Using my analogy, would we have noticed the microbursts, the gusts of wind that unjustly ended each of these lives? It's as if we needed a video to validate the existence of a deep-rooted problem that has been around for a very long time. Why is that? Why have so many become so comfortable with injustice? Why are some so immune even ignorant of its effects, while others among us labor in fear and anger and distrust from personal experiences that have scarred their soul. Christoph points out a few examples of the windstorm that has been raging behind the scenes for years. A black boy born in a number of U.S. states today has a shorter life expectancy than a boy born in Bangladesh or India. 
similar to the era of overt Jim Crow laws, today 15% of black or Hispanic children attend apartheid schools that are less than 1% white. Today, blacks are dying from coronavirus at twice the rate of whites. During this pandemic, fewer than half of African-American adults now have a job. Christoph reminds us that there is no video showing the ongoing systemic gale-forced winds that pummel our African-American brothers and sisters year in and year out. There is no galvanizing video to help us recognize that injustice is embedded into our systems and our society. There is no galvanizing video to help us recognize implicit bias and prejudice that fuels disparities in educational opportunities, nutrition, recreation, access to health care, and the general welfare of the poor, disproportionately people of color. No, we have to look, study, do some introspection. In other words, we have to actively engage. Christoph quotes Bobby Kennedy in words spoken in 1968, near and prior to his assassination, Kennedy said, this, there is another kind of violence, slower, but just as deadly, destructive as the shot or the bomb in the night. This is the violence of institutions, indifference and inaction and slow decay. This is the violence that afflicts the poor, that poisons relations between men because their skin has different colors. This is the a slow destruction of a child by hunger and schools without books and homes without heat. And I ask, do we notice? Back in May, the Christian world lost a hero of the faith. You might never have heard of Donald Dayton, but his book, Discovering an Evangelical Heritage, has made a profound impact on me, along with countless others, and has shaped the trajectory of many in the holiness tradition. And as Eric Logan pointed out, one of the things that Dayton pointed out is how the evangelical movement moved into this place of becoming a church that is dedicated more to pietism and holiness rather than social engagement. In his book, he outlines the roots of evangelicalism in its traditional and historical sense. We in the Free Methodist Church, we trace our history through that tradition. We were part of the roots of women's suffrage and abolition. We were instrumental in ministering to the poor, alleviating poor living conditions in burgeoning cities in the late 19th century, fighting for child labor laws and workers' rights. And in short, it didn't take a video. It took a commitment to the radical ways of Jesus who modeled love and care for the poor and living out our holiness and our pietism. Our legacy evolved into what became known historically now as the social gospel, and it resulted in tremendous social change. Around the turn of the 20th century, ideals of social utopia began to emerge because of all the good that was happening. The church was having an impact on the society. And then the world wars happened, and the economic collapse of 1929, and the visions of an ideal utopia were lost. 
And the backlash of the evangelical church was a retreat into a more fundamentalist idea, uh, ideal of salvation and discipleship, this pietism and this personal holiness that did not include a commitment to social change because we saw in the, in the ways that society crumbled that that, that was not going to be our ultimate hope. It became, our, our faith became something personal and isolated from the broader society. There was a fear of being labeled as too liberal theologically, of, of believing that society could actually change, and, and we retreated. Evangelical church retreated. We stopped looking. We stopped being moved by the Spirit and the gospel to engage with the poor and the broken and instead focused on salvation and an eschatological future. Somehow we washed our hands of our historical roots and relegated ourselves to the sidelines. All the while, events unfolded around the church in the middle of the 20th century, events that were waiting for an answer from the church that was so instrumental in shaping the reforms of the American society and the church that I am a part of was eerily silent and disengaged. One of those years might even compare to 2020. The winds of change were blowing in 1963. Consider some of the events that happened that year. In March through April of that year, sit-in demonstrations in Birmingham, Alabama resulted in hundreds of violent arrests and some deaths. Even Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was arrested. On April 16th, Dr. King penned what many consider to be one of his finest pieces of writing called The Letter from a Birmingham Jail, recalling its profound contents from his jail cell completely from memory. Then on May 3rd, 4th, and 5th, the Director of Public Safety of Birmingham ordered the use of police dogs and fire hoses upon the remaining protesters and what have become some of the most enduring images of the heinous treatment of protesters, both black and white, at the hands of police of the civil rights era. May 20, the Supreme Court rules Birmingham's segregation ordinances unconstitutional and yet by June, the governor was trying to block court-ordered integration of the University of Alabama. JFK had to intervene with the National Guard. Then, on August 28th, there was a march on Washington in which Dr. King delivered a speech you might be familiar with. It's called the I Have a Dream speech. However... What happened a few weeks later may have been what marked the whole turning point in the civil rights era. On September 15, 1963, four members of the KKK planted 15 sticks of dynamite in the 16th Street Baptist Church, detonating it on that fateful Sunday morning, killing four innocent young girls and injuring 22 others. Dr. King would later describe that act as one of the most vicious heinous crimes ever perpetrated against humanity. And of course, many will never forget November 22, 1963, the day that JFK was assassinated. What a year. 
Let me focus for a few minutes on that microburst of the 16th Street Church bombing, a gust of wind that sought to topple the oak tree of the church that was a beacon of hope to a tired and weary people nearly overwhelmed by the fight for freedom. What happened following was unrest, several more unjust murders of young black men, but interestingly, there was an an awakening to the injustice and the cruelty of segregation that hadn't been there before. In the face of pure evil and the death of those innocent young girls, many more people awoke to the need for change. They had seen, and many more stopped trying to deny, that segregation and discrimination needed to end. That happened in the South. But for whatever reason, it struggled to make a dent in the foundation of evangelical churches all across America. Yesterday, I sat with hundreds for eight minutes and 46 seconds as we remember George Floyd. If you haven't tried it, I encourage you to do it. I want you to realize just how long of a time that is. You know, any second of that period of time, something could have changed, and it didn't. It is excruciating to realize just how long almost nine minutes really is when you can't breathe and no one is listening to your plea for relief. And as I reflect on that, I suspect that there is something about the pure inhumanity of that event that has struck a chord with people in a way that maybe the death of those four young girls did back in September of 1963. Enough is enough. And it is nearly impossible to stand on the sidelines and make any excuse to not be involved in change. We cannot allow history to repeat itself in the Free Methodist Church. As I've been watching all that has transpired in the wake of George Floyd's horrific and tragic murder, I've seen not a new level of anger and frustration. There have been plenty of gusts of wind in the last 10 years. Even just recently, Ahmad and Brianna and going back with Eric and Philando and Trayvon and Tamir and on and on and on. No, I don't, I don't think the anger is new, but... I do think there does seem to be something different right now. The outpouring of anger crosses more sections of our society than maybe we've ever seen before. I've talked to a few folks that lived through the 50s and 60s, and even they are saying that they've not seen the kind of widespread support for change that the most recent incident has produced. This week, I heard Reverend T.D. Jakes describe the convergence that is happening in 2020 the convergence of a health pandemic, an economic pandemic, and a social pandemic. The convergence that may be so utterly unique in history as to actually position us for the kinds of reforms and change that are long overdue. It's our proverbial video that becomes undeniable and confronts us with the need for change. The storm of 2020 could very well be a turning point like the storms that raged in 1963 and turned the tide towards achieving the civil rights goals of those that stood for freedom. Dare we even believe that is possible? 
we must engage and contribute to that change. I went back to Dr. King's eulogy for those four little girls in 1963, and I was inspired at his words in the face of such evil. Let me just read a couple of sentences for you. Their deaths say to each of us, black and white alike, that we must substitute courage for caution. They say to us that we must be concerned not merely about who murdered them, but about the system, the way of life, and the philosophy which produced the murderers. Their deaths say to us that we must work passionately and unrelentingly to make the American dream a reality. So they did not die in vain. God still has a way of wringing good out of evil. History has proven over and over again that unmerited suffering is redemptive. That is the story of the gospel. Unmerited suffering that is redemptive. When good people stand up for truth and allow love to flow through them, filled with the hope because of a God who loves them and sent his own son to die for them, those people become part of the redemptive plan of God. That's when much-needed reforms take root because the soil that receives the seeds is properly fertilized with love and sustained with the waters of commitment to a higher ideal. Dr. King would go on to say, so in spite of the darkness of this hour, we must not despair. We must not become bitter. Nor must we harbor the desire to retaliate with violence. We must not lose faith in our white brothers. Somehow we must believe that the most misguided among them can learn to respect the dignity and worth of all human personality. Wow. As I reflected on those words, I realized he was talking about my father and mother, teenagers in 1963, and about my grandparents and even my great-grandparents alive in 1963. He was talking about the Free Methodist Church and other predominantly white churches at the time. I'm forced to wonder, what did they hear? What did they see? I'm plagued by the thought that Dr. King's hopeful directive fell on deaf ears in my family and in my church. He was holding on to his vision that the light of the gospel of love and truth could penetrate even the darkest of hearts such that all people could be seen for the dignified and worthy people they were. Some were listening that day. Many more have listened since. But here we are, approaching 57 years later, and we have not realized that vision my parents' generation, the generation of white folk that had an opportunity to help dismantle the pillars of a system that upheld segregation by believing there was inherent difference in worth based upon skin color, did not achieve that vision. I don't have to wonder if that hope-filled directive fell on deaf ears. I simply need to look around and see the many examples of how it remains unfulfilled. Not all dark hearts saw the dignity and worth of all people but I will not despair. Today we sit in the aftermath of a violent gust of wind in a massive and debilitating windstorm that has radically altered our landscape. 
The hope is that this year could be a turning point. The aftermath of the events in Birmingham in 1963 played a significant role in leading to the signing of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. Historians recount that the heinous act of the 16th Street Church bombing was a game changer for many. Obviously, it did not change everything, but something changed to finally pass that historic legislation. What change will the winds of 2020 bring about? We're not even halfway through. This is a violent storm. Time is going to reveal what change is possible. And as we weather the storm, I want to echo, echo Dr. King's words that in the darkness of this hour, we must not despair. The author of the winds, the creator of the storm, stands in authority over the winds of change in 2020. His authority is complete. His power is made perfect in weakness. His strength was on full display even as he was led to the cross. There was no point at which he was under any other authority or control than that of the Father. He did not despair, but loved humanity and forgave those that perpetrated evil against him. That same Father is our Father. If we surrender to him, it is only in his loving arms that we were able to not despair. When we model obedience to his loving ways, we strike at the heart of injustice, allowing his redemptive plan to work its way out through us. Foremost for us in the church, it is long past time to substitute courage for caution. We simply cannot stand by while systems remain in place to oppress. We cannot keep silent when people in power abuse that power and then seek to keep it through economic and political manipulation. We will not be solely focused on who must change. However, we will also focus our attention on the system, the way of life, and the philosophies that produce injustice, hatred, discrimination, power, and abuse. We focus our attention on the root cause of sin, even as we seek to change the various laws and systems that result in injustice. We will double down on our efforts at teaching and becoming obedient to God's word with a belief that hearts that change become aligned with God and they produce justice, they reform systems, they extend mercy, and they exhibit humility. We commit to digging deeper into God's word and expect that any expression of obedience to his truth will result in deeper awareness of the dignity and worth of all human beings. We will resist any attempts at being either or and instead press into better discipleship and holistic social reform. We cannot simply isolate ourselves from one or the other. Let me sum this up for you and close us out for today. The winds of change in 2020 are rocking our world. And time will tell if this year is the turning point that we hope it all can be. The first point is we have, each of us, the opportunity to commit to that change. Number two, we live into change best when we ourselves lead with obedience to God. We surrender ourselves to his lordship and his leadership under the guidance of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
Number three, our response to recent events is not despair as much as we are prone to that. We serve the author of change who himself never changes. Therefore, we believe as he has promised that he will bring all things together for good and we can be part of that process. Number four, the author of change can change any heart. From a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, you heard Pastor Olivier read that passage straight out of Ezekiel this morning, and no, we didn't talk about it. So we pray for those that are blind and for change to systems that will reinforce that change. Number five, we are called to love. I heard it yesterday as the heart cry of the Black Lives Matter folks. It's the cry of each of our hearts. It's the demonstration of Christ upon the cross. We are called to love and to be love. Number six, systemic reform and personal reform. We lead best when we lead in both. Number seven, we pray for justice, which is not found in a political party, but in the God of the Bible. Therefore, we resist the urge to take sides and rather unite in the bond of seeking justice and love as demonstrated in the Bible. May we stand up for justice and truth, no matter whether it's popular or unpopular. Justice demands that we stand up. Number eight, we will learn from our past and seek not to repeat a history of isolating ourselves from the front lines of needed reforms. Number nine, we come together knowing that we are stronger when the body is working together than when the body is fractured and unable to communicate. And number ten, finally, we demonstrate our trust in God through prayer. Church, we have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of ground to make up. We have a lot of space that we have ceded away over many, many decades. And if we're going to reclaim the ground which saw this church, the evangelical church, the free Methodist church, leading the way on some of the most difficult social issues of its day, we're going to have to roll up our sleeves and commit to being part of that change. And so I'm inviting you to be a part of that with us. It will be uncomfortable. There's a lot of learning. There's some dialogue that needs to happen. And I do believe that we can help to encourage others around us, our sisters and brothers in other churches and other places who are looking to us and and looking to us to lead the way. And so we need to be the leaders and committed to that. We have a lot of ground to make up. And so I am thankful that we have a group of leaders in our church that is committed to being a part of that change. They have rolled up their sleeves. They are doing their part. They are serving in our community. They are giving out. They are, uh, they are serving in ways that uh, nobody will ever know, nobody will ever see, but lives are being impacted. And I am so, so grateful for the work of this church, the history of this church, and the commitment of this church. And I'm just simply echoing that we will not stand idly by. 
during this, during this season, during this time, we will be active, we will be engaged. And by God's grace, we will be used to make an impact and a difference in this world around us. Let me close with some words that uh, Peter and others prayed in Acts chapter 4. My colleague and friend, Pastor Lewis, prayed this with me this very morning. And when I heard it, I was like, wow, I just need to repeat that. It's the end of a prayer in uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 28. It's like verse 29, actually. And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, may you give your church, your servants, great boldness to engage in the world around us, to engage in justice, to engage in the reforms of systems that have been plagued for far too long by prejudice, by discrimination, by internal and implicit bias, some of it blindness, some of it overt. Lord Jesus, help us to be agents of change in the world around us. Help us to look inside of ourselves. Help us to be committed in prayer. Help us to be lovingly engaging in dialogue and learning and growing and, and doing whatever it is that's necessary for us to be a part of a solution, a part of a long-term and lasting change that will see this scourge of racism and viewing anyone through any other lens than the dignity and worth with which you created them. Lord, that we will see that done away with once and for all. You made each and every person in your image. The image of a beautiful creation, Lord, looks like you. And so, Lord, I pray that today we will see with fresh eyes, with fresh hearts, that you will touch each and every one of us and provide us hope that we will not be in despair, but Lord Jesus, we will recognize the opportunity that we have to spread and to share the love of God abroad in the world around us. Let us be engaged, Lord Jesus, for your glory. We love you, Lord. We honor and thank and praise you today. In Jesus' name, amen.